Hello, and welcome to Think Like a Game Designer. I'm your host, Justin Gary. In this podcast, I'll be having conversations with brilliant game designers from across the industry with a goal of finding universal principles that anyone can apply in their creative life. You can find episodes and more at thinklikeagamedesigner.com. In today's podcast, I have a conversation with Jesse Shell. Shell was a Disney Imagineer, creating rides for Disney Quest, creating Toontown Online, and he was a founding member of the Entertainment Technology Center at Carnegie Mellon University. He founded Shell Games in 2002, which has launched countless games, including I Expect You to Die and Domino World. You could find these games and more at his website, shellgames.com. That's S-C-H-E-L-L-G-A-M-E-S.com. But outside of all this, what really got me interested in Jesse was his incredible book, The Art of Game Design, which is, in my opinion, the most useful book for someone that's aspiring as a game designer, leaving aside, of course, my own book with the same name as this podcast. Um, it really dives deep into all the different lenses that you can view game design from, whether that be from the mechanics, from the rules, from the players, from the business, all of it. Really a very comprehensive book. And, and I wanted to reach out to him because he taught me so much. And I was hoping that my conversation could teach you guys that as well. And really, Jesse did not disappoint. In this episode, we talk about how he got into game design, we talk about what it was like to work as a Disney Imagineer, how he started and grew his own company. We talk about Jesse's thoughts on augmented reality and virtual reality games. We talk about what it's like to teach games both in class, in his studio, and through his book. And we even talk about how being a professional circus performer prepared Jesse for a life in game design, and so much more. Jesse is really one of the people that I credit with giving me a ton of skills and learning a ton about design. Uh, and I learned a ton in this conversation, as I'm sure you will. So I'll let us get to my conversation with Jesse Shell. Hello and welcome. I am here with Jesse Shell. It is great to have you here. I'm very excited. I've been looking forward to this talk for a while. Hey, great to be here. So um, one of the things I, I always uh, try to get started with is, you know, most of the people listening to this are uh, people who, are, who love games and want to get into the field of game design, but don't necessarily know how to get started. And so I like everybody to kind of tell their story about what, what brought you into the field. How did you get started? Um, you know, kind of what got you going in the, in the beginning? Got it. Well, let's see. I've always been interested in um, games and making games ever since I was a really little. I mean, I remember making up games, I don't know, being ages four and five and being pretty excited about that. Um, the first digital games that I got involved making would have been in the early 80s. I was probably about 12 years old and computers were starting to come into the home. And the idea of being able to make my own games was very exciting and of course those computers were very maker forward right they they all came with a programming language and urged you to learn how to use it and all that so i uh that was really how i started just sort of making simple games um hanging out at the department store that kind of thing and um so and i and i was hooked on it i got really hooked on programming and stuck with it as a hobby for uh, for quite some time, and eventually went to school for computer science, but never really imagined I'd be a I'd be able to make games professionally. And so the the big step forward for me was after working at IBM and Bell Labs for a while, 
uh, there was an opportunity to work at the Disney Virtual Reality Studio. And that was about 1995. And that was when I really um, took my first step in making professional games. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much a, a dream opportunity. It's something I've, uh, you know, I grew up in, in Florida and would go to Disney all the time. And, uh, you know, being able to work on those things, I think I actually played uh, in many of the things that you worked on down there at the Disney Quest and, and some of their right. uh, cool toys back then. So that's that's a really exciting. So did you just, you found that job like a posting online? Did you know somebody? What What, how did that, how did you get into that? So I'd been working for Bell Labs. They sent me to grad school at Carnegie Mellon to learn about computer networking. I twisted that into a focus on virtual reality and because that was kind of a new thing that was hot and I was really interested in it. So I was doing a lot of virtual reality work in grad school. And after graduating, my wife and I got married and she'd wanted to go to Disney World for our honeymoon. And I'd never had much interest in Disney World. I knew a lot about theme parks. I used to work at amusement parks and things. But I didn't really know anything about Disney parks. Um, and in fact, I always had a kind of a negative impression. I'd see Disney parades and stuff on TV, and it all looked really corny. And I just figured it was all just going to be uh, sort of just low-quality stuff. And uh, after visiting there, I came away with a completely different attitude. I'd never seen such high quality experience design anywhere and it just so happened that they had the mark one version of aladdin's magic carpet ride in kind of a beta state and we happened to walk by one part of interventions at epcot and there was some disney employee kind of like hey psst, hey you want to try uh try this virtual reality thing <laughs> hey kid you want to come over here <laughs> i know and i'm thinking what are you kidding and we go and check it out. And it's, you know, they, they, they sort of give a talk about what virtual reality is. And then they pick a few volunteers and people get to try it and everybody else watches. And it was the highest quality VR I had ever seen. And you had already been specializing in VR at that time. And you just got picked kind of randomly down on the street in Disney. To, that's amazing. Yep. Yep. I didn't know this thing was here. I had no idea. We were just walking around and just happened to see it. And we're like, wow, yeah, of course, let's go check that out. That's awesome. Um, That's awesome. And so that made a huge impression on me. And I immediately asked them, like, do you guys have job openings or anything like that? And they were like, no, 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 nothing like that. And so that was like, oh, well, too bad. But I, uh, at the time, I was always reading. Uh, we used to have this thing called Usenet. See, uh, <laughs> how we did our news groups about 25 years ago. And that was that was how we'd get our online news. And there was a thing called Psy.Virtualworlds, Virtual Worlds, which had all the news of what was going on in virtual reality land. And I was always reading that just to kind of keep up with the VR stuff, even though after graduating, I wasn't doing VR anymore. I was back at the uh, phone company, doing phone company stuff, making graphical maps and that kind of thing. But then one day I see this posting for a position at Disney Imagineering to work in the VR studio. And they want someone who... Uh, has worked on VR before, check. Somebody who has, has, knows how to program AI systems, which that was my specialty in undergrad, so check. Somebody who knew how to do sound design, and I used to do college radio, so sure. And someone who knows how to put on a show. And I used to do, uh, I was a professional circus performer for a while. Um, I, uh, when I was in high school and college, I worked with a few different troops and toured around and uh, worked in amusement parks, all that stuff. 
And so I could check all four of those boxes. So I applied. And a few weeks later, we were moving out to uh, Los Angeles. And uh, that was the beginning of me uh, spending seven years at uh, at Disney. That is amazing. That is amazing. So uh, it's actually, well, there's a couple of threads I want to pull on from there. Uh, I'll start with the last one first, which is the, I, I had read online in your profile that you had done uh, this uh, circus performing and juggling and comedy and all of these different aspects to your life. And, yeah. you know, I found that with a few, a few other people in, in game design, they, they sort of are these polymaths that can, you know, work from a lot of different fields. Do you feel like that, you know, informed your love of design? Do you feel that there's a, was a cross skills, you know, obviously in this case directly uh, for the job you got, but, uh, but as far as in the craft of design itself, uh, how, how do you feel those things relate? Well, I think it goes the other way, actually. I, I think to, to be excited about game design and follow through on it, you have to have passion and confidence in a number of different fields because that's what games are. Games, uh, games pull together all these different media just necessarily. Even a board game. For a board game, you've got to be thinking about rules, which means you need to figure out how you're going to write them and express them and think logically. You've got to think about the graphics of the board. And you've got to, so visual layout and graphic design um, end up being something that's very important. You're going to touch the pieces in a board game, so you've got to think about the sculptural aspects, pieces that are too heavy or too light or, 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 you're, or are hard to pick up. Um, and, if you, and, and that's even just with a board game, with a digital game. Now you get into sound and animation and storytelling and music. And, and, and if you don't enjoy thinking about a whole bunch of different things and how they all fit together, you're going to hate game design because that's, that's what it is. It's about doing all these different things and fitting them all together so that they are harmonious. And so I think it's, it is people who, who, who lean toward a, a kind of a polymath um, approach that, that tend to enjoy game design the most. That, that that makes sense i uh yeah i mean you're you're in the end you're crafting this experience and you have to be conscious of and at least somewhat uh proficient with all the different parts that touch on that experience yeah yeah okay so the second thread uh i wanted to pull out of uh your background story here is is you know virtual reality um it's it's a you know was a big hot uh thing back when you were first getting started as this kind of new wave it kind of died down in the public awareness and then it's risen back up again over the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, how do you think about that space and the technology and why it sort of maybe didn't catch fire then? And is it going to now? And, and how, do, how are you thinking about that these days? Yeah. I mean, the, uh, the thing that always excited me about it, I mean, I've always loved the thing I love about all games are the way that we create a kind of an imaginary situation that you can really go into and do things in. And um, that's true whether it's you know a sport or a board game or a video game. And virtual reality is special because it 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 kind of tricks your brain into thinking that you're in a place that you're not. And that allows you to kind of have this sort of depth of immersion and and it allows you to fulfill parts of the game design experience that we've never been able to fulfill before. We don't need you to pr pretend quite as hard because 
your body and your brain are believing the place that you're in a lot more easily. And that was a lot of what the original appeal of it was for me. Back in the 90s, the technology wasn't quite ready. It sort of worked, but um, all the tracking was magnetic, which was full of problems. The field of view wasn't very good. The number of pixels we could push and polys we could push was, was very limited. Um, so it just was, we, it was just really the technology just wasn't quite ready. Um, a lot like how, you know, television was invented in 1890 and video phones were first demonstrated in 1950. Like, yep, those are good things, but they just weren't ready. Um, now it's a different story. Now, uh, 20 plus years later, the technology is definitely ready and it is just now teetering on the edge of affordability. And I, th I think in the next couple of years, we're going to start to see some, some truly mass adoption. I mean, already we have the number of high-end VR systems in homes is now in the millions. Um, but uh, we're going to see it in the tens of millions uh, before much longer. Yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed the challenge. So I've worked on two VR games um, so far. And, and you know, my core background is, is tabletop games and trading card games. And we've moved into the digital digital gaming space and then now a, a few VR. And it was a really fascinating because, you know, you've been wrestling with this sort of stuff for a long time. And, and for me, it was relatively recent, like understanding both the, the opportunities and the limitations of that space that I have, you know, when I'm working on a tabletop, I have a certain amount of space and physicality that comes to it and a socialization that, that comes with it. When I'm working in digital, I have the, you know, sort of a mobile device. I have, you know, the sort of speed and processing power, but a very small amount of space and not and the social is much harder. And I found VR um, made, you know, you had tons of space, uh, but not all of it is as usable as you think. <laughs> and social gets pretty close to real life. You get a lot more out of it. Um, but but wrestling with those those transitions was was really fascinating for me. Yeah, it's very different. Um, if uh, you a lot of the old habits from making uh, traditional video games don't translate very well uh, into VR because it's it's just a different medium. And we we saw the same thing really when we went from people making PC and console games, switching to mobile. Like everybody tried just porting across the old games that they were used to making and those didn't work too well. And what worked instead were things that were better suited and better rooted in the medium. And uh, we're seeing the same thing with VR. So if uh, you could maybe give a few maybe counterintuitive lessons or, or thoughts that, that working in VR relative to, to other mediums that you've learned over the years. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the some of the main things about VR is number one. I think is is the question of motion um, in the game, locomotion and exploration. The default activity in most video games is to explore a space. That's that's normally um, sort of the the base of what you do. You you know you run and jump or you run and shoot. Um, and it's all about moving about a space and learning about that space. Motion is problematic in VR because since VR is trying to, you know, map your real motion to virtual motion, we don't yet have the capability to have you actually run, you know, thousands of feet uh, in the game without it, without it being a problem. 
So, um, so people come up with artificial ways to move about VR worlds, and those have a tendency to lead to motion sickness because of that physical virtual disconnect. And there are a lot of hacks that people try to kind of get around this, but it is that that's sort of a central difference. And generally, we're finding that the wisest move is to be able to avoid uh, that motion uh, when you can for the key for key interactions. And so, the the way I often put it is, you're better off uh, moving away from exploration as your key. As, as, your, as your foundational activity, if you can move towards manipulation as your foundational activity, um, picking up objects and doing things with them, that's what VR is really, really good at. And when you can move to that as a foundational activity, you're, you're in a much more stable place. This is a great transition to talking about a game that you've released, the, uh, I, expect you, I Expect You to Die. Uh, and it sound, it, this is one of the things I often tell aspiring designers that everything that you think is a constraint is actually an opportunity. And so you've taken this model of manipulation and being trapped in one place and turned it into a, a benefit and a, and a cool part of the story. Can, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, sure. Right. So I Expect You to Die is a, is a game that uh, we made at Shell Games that's basically being about getting trapped in a series of secret agent death traps and needing to MacGyver your way out of each one. And so uh, the, the entire game is designed to be played while seated. And uh, the, the whole idea is you're in a series of different settings. At one point, you're in a car. Another point, you're in a, uh, a submarine of, a very, of various places and where you you have an urgent situation that you have to get yourself out of by by solving puzzles and it's in a, a lot of ways you can kind of look at it like an escape room we use a lot of uh, escape room style design but the whole idea is to really make you feel like you're in that place and to really make you feel clever when you uh solve the puzzles right i um i found that uh yeah, one of, it's been an advantage of doing kind of tabletop style games in virtual reality um, that you can, you know, the expectation is you're not moving anywhere. You're working with a board and other people around a table. Um, and so that's been been very helpful uh, as well as a paradigm. Uh, and then, you know, trying to think about how we can then use what's cool about virtual reality and, and, and bring that to, to the, what would normally be a traditional tabletop experience. Yeah, yeah. No, we spent a bit of time experimenting with tabletop experiences ourselves. Anything that you've released or just kind of internal playing around? No, nothing we'd released because I, I guess what I learned is I that I had, I think, the wrong end of the stick initially when I was thinking about that. I started... So one of the things that um, I think is really powerful about VR is the social aspect of it. The fact that you can sit you can be near another person and and uh you can really read their body language in and you you feel this closeness to them that you don't get in other media um and so naturally the idea of board games makes a lot of sense because there's some gameplay where you're you're with friends you're kind of closely socializing etc and my initial vision was very much that, wow, of course, people are going to want to play <clears throat> traditional board games um, in VR, because that way, you know, now I don't have to actually travel to see my friends. We can all just 
just kind of, you know, put on our headset and bam, we're all together playing our favorite games. And so we put a lot of energy into this early on, trying to solve all the hard problems because, man, it's hard problems, right? How do you, what's the right way to draw a card in VR? What's the right way to hold a bunch of cards in your hand? How do you fan cards? How do you sort them? How do you, all that kind of stuff. Right. And it was kind of like, if we can solve all those problems, like we're going to have a thing that's going to make a lot of sense and we could maybe be a platform and we could maybe have, uh, you know, we could have hundreds of board games on it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we started building prototypes in that space and made this realization that, yeah, that's all cool in theory. But in practice, when people are in a VR world, they really want some kind of superpowers. And so we started to see that, yeah, board games, I think, can work in VR, but they need to do things that board games in the real world can't do, um, is the conclusion we started to come to. And so my initial thought of, oh, we'll build a simple platform, we'll just drop hundreds of known board games into it, and everyone will love it. Uh, we started to back away from that and realize that, no, if we're going to do this, we need to do things that are very, very uh, special, and which means they're not going to be cheap to do. And so we, we ended up kind of, we're, we're kind of taking a step back trying to figure that out. At least that's, that's my take on it. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, we've, we've, we've tried sort of two different approaches. And one of the things, um, there's the game uh, Ascension, which is we released as a regular card game and then as a as a mobile app and then in, in VR and, you know, it just sort of created the immersive world around you and simulated the, the, the social component of it. Um, and it was sort of a more straightforward execution that was just sort of done really well by a company we work with called Templegate Games. And then uh, this other game Labyrinth, which was sort of a more started off as a, as a kind of turn-based tactical card board game. And in the VR version, you could actually like, zoom in to the character's point of view and like see the giant monster on top of you and and it sort of kind of created that cool little bit of magic even even though it wasn't necessarily functionally changing the game a lot it was creating that that experience that kind of like whoa i can't believe that just happened um which was was pretty cool cool yeah i there's still 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 puzzle pieces to fit out there it's definitely a, an interesting challenge yeah so I'd like to transition a bit from the uh, the virtual reality world to augmented reality, um, which I think I know from some of your talks is something you're also very excited about. And, uh, at, you know, it feels like that's a space where a lot of radical changes, not just to sort of games as we know them, but also to the way we do life is, is on the horizon. Uh, how are you thinking about that these days? Yeah, I mean, you talk to a lot of people about virtual reality, and they say, oh, I don't know, I don't know if I'd really like that, but augmented reality, that's what I really want. And um, when you probe that a little deeper about, well, what do you really want out of that? And people don't really know what they want out of that. <laughs> they, <laughs> they know they want it, but they don't know why they want it or what they want out of it exactly. You get, you get vague things about, well, I could walk down the street and see restaurant reviews over the store, like, really would you that's a thing you'd really want <laughs> so so it's a fascinating space to explore um because it has a lot of promise but it's incredibly technically difficult and nobody quite knows what it's really for 
So we, of course, right now we've got sort of two flavors of augmented reality. You've got your handheld phone-based stuff, and we're seeing ARKit and ARCore um, on iOS and Android, respectively, kind of pushing that. And then you've got your your head-mounted, your glasses-based uh, AR. And so far for that, we mostly we have Hololens, and uh, we've had a lot of we've heard a lot of uh, promises from Magic Leap, and and we'll see what they uh, come out with. But uh, the way I look at it is, um, I think we're going to see a, a, an AR platform that no one's thinking about right now. I think we're going to see VR headsets turn into AR headsets because the technical problem of overlaying your a pair of glasses with visuals that uh, that 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 really fill your field of view in a, in a meaningful way is, is tricky business. Um, you got HoloLens doing it one way. We don't no one quite knows what Magic Leap is going to do. You've also got things like the, the Jedi challenges from Disney and Lenovo. Um, and, uh, uh, these, like, these are all different solutions, but none of them are like a lightweight form factor that people are ready to integrate into their daily life. I mean, you even look at stuff like Google Glass, which was super lightweight, super slick, and it wasn't good enough. Or, or uh, Snapchat, Snapchat's photo glasses, and those haven't caught on at all either. Um, so I guess the way I look at it is we're going to have VR headsets are going to get cheaper, they're going to get Lighter, um, Vive's already announced the Vive Focus at this point, which is is a completely integrated headset that uses inside-out tracking. So there's no wires, no cameras to set up. It's just all integrated, no computer to hook to. It just all lives on board. And of course, it's going to have stereo cameras on it for tracking the space and the environment. But once you have stereo cameras, why not let the the player look at them? Um, and that will give you the ability to either be an AR headset or a VR headset. And I think we're going to see that's going to be one of the places we see the most AR development because it's going to be a powerful piece of hardware with a great field of view that is already set up to be a game system. And it's going to be a lot cheaper than the, the fancy uh, sort of quantum waveguide systems like the HoloLens. Yeah, I think the uh, the interaction between the kind of physical world as it stands and the digital or game world is one that lots of people have tried over the years, and I've played around with in a, in a variety of different ways as well. And it 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 often falls short in in the sense that you know the goal is to be able to sort of in some ways get the best of both worlds, right? You want to get the upsides of that. You know, you can customize the digital space and in the physical world you have the automatics of the tactile interaction and you know all of the sort of common assumptions of the world that we have getting aside from just the sort of glasses and and kind of projection kind of model what uh have you played around much with toy or physical based games that use that interact in the digital world or have some kind of augmentation from that space yeah, sure. I mean, we've been doing a number of things in the in the aerospace already. Like we have a game we created called Domino World that we originally put out on the Tango, and then we uh, have 
ported it to uh, iOS and are soon going to be taking it to Android for AR Core. And what it lets you do is it lets you um, set up, you know, you, you point your camera at surfaces in the world, tabletops and floors and things, and you can set up big rows and street and little little paths of dominoes and uh, set them up in all kinds of patterns and then knock them down. It's the same kind of thing you can do in the real world, except it just takes forever in the real world. And you can do it quite quickly in uh, the, the the AR space. And we integrate all these toys with it too, little toy airplanes and toy dinosaurs that march around and knock over your dominoes. And uh, we that's, it's, that's been really fun. And I, I think part of the key with the AR space is doing things that you can't do in other media and that use the space well. Yeah, yeah, I've uh, I've played around with that uh, the the domino thing. I've seen the the videos for it. It seems super cool. It's just all the things I wish I could do in real life, but uh, I'm too lazy or uh, not precise enough to make it happen. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and then and then you've got Disney with the Jedi challenges thing. I don't know if you had a chance to look at that yet, but I've read about it. I haven't actually seen it, but I, it's basically the dream of light of what Luke does when he's practicing in the uh, the first movie. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's basically you, 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 it's a system that allows you to, uh, have a lightsaber battle against, uh, you know, Darth Vader and all the bad guys in, in Star Wars, except they're standing in your living room and you have a lightsaber battle with them. And uh, we'll see, you know, we'll, we'll see how that does. And I think it's gonna, it's gonna, the, the, that's going to point the way for sort of future AR games. Yeah, I feel like with these things, it's always things start to catch fire when you get that perfect match between the the sort of story and IP and the the technology. Like you know, uh, Pokemon Go is a is a great example of this, right? Like the the technology has been around forever. That that level of augmented reality, uh, but it was that that sort of combination of the gotta catch them all. Pokemon are hiding everywhere uh, with the technology that really made it come alive and 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 go viral in a in a pretty crazy way. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, when you got the right technology and the right IP at the right time, that's when things often catch. Uh, Pokemon Go is a, a great example of that. So, I've any any anything that gets me feeling like I'm having a lightsaber battle. I remember when I first saw the Wii controllers or even frankly even when I first had the stupid uh <laughs> played the app on that first iPhone where it made your phone feel like it was a lightsaber. I uh got a lot got a real kick out of that. Yeah, right, right. So I want to transition um, to another topic. You've worked in a lot of different environments. When you first started, you were programming and making things on your own as a as, as a kid and, and, and through into college. You then started working with Disney, um, which is... Uh, how big was your team when you were working at Disney? And, and what was kind of the scope w- when you were there? Uh, let's see. The team varied in size over time from probably about 15 up to about 35. Then from there, you transitioned to your own um, independent game studio, and um, you have, I think, was some over a hundred people now. Is that correct? Yeah, we got about a hundred and hundred and ten, something like that. That is that is amazing. So, uh, you know, one of the things that I um, wanted to ask you about is what made you make that transition from Disney, which many people would consider to be a dream job, to starting your own studio. Gotcha. Yeah, my uh, my wife and I, after after we'd been in LA for about seven years, and I mean, working at Disney was you know absolutely phenomenal experience. We got to develop some of the attractions for Disney Quest. Um, I became the lead designer on Toontown Online, um, which uh, was you know the first MMO for kids, and that was super fun. 
And my, but uh, after we, after our daughter was born, we thought, you know, we might want to move back to the East Coast. And uh, we, I was looking at different opportunities and possibilities. And one of them was to teach at Carnegie Mellon, where I'd gone to grad school. And there was an opportunity there at the Entertainment Technology Center, which uh, didn't exist when I had gone to school. It was kind of a new thing that had been created by uh, Randy Pausch and Don Marinelli. And I knew Randy Pausch pretty well because he'd done a sabbatical um, at Disney. And I worked with him a lot while he was doing that. So we'd stayed in touch quite a bit. And I'd learned a lot about this new entertainment technology center. And in fact, I'd hired people from it at Disney and thought it was, you know, like I loved the quality of the uh, students that were coming out of it. And Randy was always after me to, hey, he would say, you know, take a, take a semester off and come and teach at Carnegie Mellon. And I would say, you don't, I don't know if you get how the, <laughs> the business world works. I can't just like go away for four months and come back and have my desk still be there. <laughs> Um, but I'd said, hey, what if I came and stayed longer? And so uh, we tried that out and I, I moved, moved back to Pittsburgh and started teaching there. And it's gone well. I mean, I still teach there after uh, it's been 15 years. I, I moved, I, I initially started full time. I've switched now to, to half time as the studio grew. But I created the studio kind of on the side, um, partly because I. Um, the, the teaching, like teaching is only nine months a year. There's nothing going on in the, in the summer, but also out of a desire to kind of be in touch with the industry and to, to make some real, real things. Um, and so initially we just started with four or five people. I knew some people who I'd love to work with and I'd been doing independent design consulting and that was going well. And people were saying, Hey, we could throw you some projects if, if you wanted to pull a team together. And I thought that sounded good. So I started doing that. And bit by bit, the studio has uh, grown. So we've been a completely independent studio the whole time. We've never taken investment money. Um, we uh, we we bootstrapped ourselves by by doing a lot of partnership projects as well as creating our own stuff. So that's that's both fascinating. It was a conscious choice, I assume, to sort of not you know keep other money out of it and and really try to grow, I guess, more slowly than you might otherwise. Uh, I mean, the thing, I mean, I've always understood about other people's money, right? When you, when you take other people's money, you're now, you got now got to meet other people's goals. And usually people with money, their goal is they want to make, uh, as much money as possible, as fast as possible. And what that usually means is focus all your energy on one thing, blow it up as big as you can and sell it off and get out. Right. And there are a lot of things about that that were not, uh, appealing to me. I don't, necessarily like working on just one thing that's that whole polymath thing we were talking about right the idea that just hey we, we're going to work on things the way we want to work on them when we want to work on them was was very appealing and further like i i would say for the in the beginning we didn't have some idea that it would make sense to go to venture capitalists and say here's going to be the way you make your next, you know, you, you multiply your investment by 10 because we're going to blow up this big platform. We just wanted to make games. And um, so it, it, it really was very organic, I would say. And our growth has similarly been organic. We, we take on more people when there's enough work to sustain it. And we do it kind of carefully and, and cautiously because the, the thing that's horrible is to have to lay people off because you can't... Um, find the work in order to sustain, um, to sustain them. And, and blessedly in all this time, we haven't had to do that. 
Well, I really am wishing that you and I had this conversation about five years ago, because um, <laughs> every, almost everything that you, mistakes that you've avoided are ones that I've made. Um, you know, it's a so it's it's a fascinating uh, bit of insight uh, that it's worth. I just want to underscore that you know, know up front or at least have some idea what's important to you, and bring people on that and work with people that whose interests are aligned with yours. And that's not always going to be the case with investors or any kind of, you know, even other partners that you'd work with who, who may have different visions. Yeah. It's, it's, it's great. It's great lessons for people getting started out there. Uh, the, the, the idea of, Hey, let's get it, let's get big and let's go this traditional route is not, is not always the right answer. Yeah. I mean, you just, you just have to know what you're getting into. I mean, I think, I think there are times it totally makes sense and there are times that it, it makes less sense. So, you know, you talk about organic growth, but organic growth up to 110 people is is pretty pretty impressive. And you know, one of the things I've found is that at each stage of growth, uh, there's totally different challenges that 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 happen. You know, when I started with a team of four people, it was totally different than a team of 10, than a team of 30, than a team of you know, we we didn't get much bigger than that. But you know, how how have you? What have you learned through that process? What challenges have come as you've as you've grown the organization, or what systems have you put in place to kind of help make that effective as you've grown to keep keep the culture and keep the productivity and and, and make it what you want? Yeah, no, that's that's a that's a great question. I mean, I, I occasionally talk to people who say, you know, what are your secrets for engineering a good culture? And I often think that's really the wrong way to think of it. I don't think you can engineer a culture per se i think a culture is a thing that grows um it's you can't engineer culture any more than you can engineer a house plant um you you know it's it's much more about tending and caring for your culture so first that means you have to figure out what your culture is and usually that just is sort of something that appears right you start doing some work and you see the things that you like when you work with each other and um and the good parts, you know, that's that's kind of the 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 culture that you want to strive for. And when there's bad parts, you want to figure out, well, hey, is there anything we can do to get rid of these bad parts? Now, when you have less than 20 people, I find you don't have to think very hard about communication because generally when you have less than 20 people, everybody on the in the in the studio, they're going to talk to each other at least once during the week. Each each person will talk to one of the other 19 people sometime during the week, some small conversation. Once you start to get above 20, that doesn't necessarily, that's not necessarily true anymore. You'll go a whole month and not even exchange two words with somebody else. So when you get even bigger than that, there's people you don't even know who they are in the organization. And so once you start to get up to those sizes, if you're going to have meaningful information flow, in the studio, you have to engineer it. You have to have you, you have to have the right meetings at the right cadence at the right time. You have to you have to kind of engineer all these ways that people can talk to each other. And two two things that gave me a lot of hope in this regard. One of them was early on we were it was funny right when we were about twenty people is when we started working. We ended up working with Disney and, and Pixar on a certain project, and visiting Pixar was was fascinating um, because I'd never visited their studio before. And their studio, I don't remember exactly, I want to say has about a thousand people in it, somewhere around there, but it doesn't feel like 
a thousand person studio, it feels quite small and intimate and it feels like everybody knows what's going on. And it's because they carefully engineer that through their design of space, uh, through their design of meetings and through the other rituals that they they create. And sort of sort of seeing that, wow, they can create this intimate feeling and a good culture with a thousand people, then like surely we could do it as we move up beyond 20 and up to 30. We can find a way to, to do that. And I started going around talking to other uh, game developers who I knew had had long-term successful studios and talking to them about the problem. And Ted Price, who runs Insomniac, was he had some, an excellent a thing that was very inspiring and, and, and good advice, I thought. He said, what gets you in trouble as you grow is ignoring the changes that happen when you grow. But if you're uh, aware of the changes and paying attention to them and trying to solve the problems that arise, you'll be able to solve them. You're like He says, I've never met anybody who who was aware of the problems, looked for the problems, and could not solve them. The people who get in trouble are the people who ignore the problems, pretend they're not there, and just grow without thinking. That's when you get in big trouble. And that, that gave me a lot of confidence, too. And, uh, and I found that is true. Um, as we've watched and observed what the, what the issues and the problems are, um, uh, we've been able to build structures that have facilitated growth. We're kind of in a, a growth period right now, and I'm pretty sure the system that we have in place will work up until we get to about 150 people. We're at about 110 right now. Um, after that 150, we're aware that we're going to have to do some different things and change. Um, but, uh, but, but, I, but again, it's just you'll have to. We'll have. We'll take. We'll solve that problem when it's when it's time. So uh, there's multiple threads here as well. Uh, I really I'm interested to dig into when you say that as long as you're aware of the problems and put effort into fixing it you should feel confident you can yeah how do you how do you train that level of awareness how do you what what systems sort of meta systems i guess do you have in place uh for for that and and actually it occurs to me that there's probably some pretty good parallels between that and the way you observe game systems and how you know looking for problems there i don't know if that's true yep you put your finger right on it it's the same process I, I honestly, I often think of the studio, see, and, and actually this was a little bit of a crisis I know that I faced as the studio got larger. When it was small, I was kind of head of design and I did, game design was most of what I thought about. I thought a little bit about production and I thought a little bit about all the business things that we had to do. But But the majority of my effort and attention was all about let's make sure our game designs are great. And as we got bigger, that didn't really make sense anymore. And things started to get chaotic. Uh, people weren't getting the coaching they needed. And at some point, I sort of realized that, like, wow, this the problem here is me. The problem is this is going to work. I need to put more of my attention into making sure people are getting the right coaching and the right feedback and less attention into making the games. And that didn't sound too great to me because I went into this because I wanted to spend time making games, not, um, you know, trying to optimize individuals. But meditating on this for a bit, at some point I started to realize that, you know, you really can think of the studio as a game itself and the 
the people who work at the studio as the players of that game. And I found that for me, thinking about it that way changed everything because then I could bring everything I knew about great game design to bear. And, and, and so that's that. So I think, I think what you say is true. I really do think it, it is a lot of the same uh, techniques, isn't it? You know, you, you, you look for the problems, you talk to people just like you do with play testing to sort of see what are they liking? What are they not liking? And you, you figure out what are the problems, you prioritize those problems, you come up with experiments to try and solve them. Um, and then you, you make plans and you, 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 you get it done. So, so we do have a lot of things that we do in order to check on, um, on things. Uh, let's see where to begin. There's so many different ways we have of, of kind of getting this feedback and figuring out what we should change. One of them is, uh, so with our management team, we make sure to have periodic offsite meetings because the temptation is always to spend all your time solving the current fire of the day, right? There's this problem or that problem, or there's not enough staff on this, or this project's falling behind or, or whatever. And you end up spending a huge amount of time thinking about those things. But if that's all you think about, you never get ahead of everything. So you have to schedule opportunities to talk about the bigger issues. And so part of it is we carve out time to kind of keep track of the bigger issues, have, have meetings and conversations about like, you know, the bigger issues. Um, what, you know, what's the right way to give feedback? What should we have? What titles should we have at the studio? Um, what are people happy about, not happy about all, all those sorts of things. So, so one is just making time to think about that stuff. And then another, the other one really is, I think just making lots of channels of, uh, feedback. We have a whole 360 feedback system where people can give feedback about what it's like to work with other people because always a lot of the big concerns that people have are I'm having a problem with this person or that person. And then we also have other systems. We have a system in place called Office Vibe, which uh, sort of a, a suggestion box people can, it's an anonymous suggestion box that people can send you know, comments to management with about things they're concerned about. And the best part is it's, you can have an anonymous conversation through it. So somebody can say, Hey, I, uh, I wish we had more healthy snacks and I can write back, Hey, anonymous, that's a great suggestion. Uh, we're looking into it. Um, and, uh, I'll give you some feedback with what we find what, about whether we can afford more healthy snacks, that kind of thing. And simple things like that really make a big difference because um uh, i like what ed catmull from pixar says you've you've got problems you know about and you've got problems you don't know about and actively looking for the problems you don't know about is a is a big key to keeping an organization healthy great so you have um the multiple channels of feedback um sounds like this cool opportunities for anonymous feedback opportunities for multiple levels of review for each individual person ways to give them feedback as well as management um you i assume what are what are sort of the more broad are there any broad metrics that you use to measure your success over time or or where you're whether you're moving in the right direction or wrong direction well, I mean, the easy stuff is the financial stuff. Like, are we making money at what we do? So we look, we look hard at that, try and make sure we don't, we're not losing money on projects at a minimum. And if we are like, why, what did we do wrong? Where, how did we, how did that happen? And how can we, how can we stop that from happening? Um, so we look at all the, the, 
financial stuff, uh, certainly. And then, of course, with the individuals, you know, we, we try and give them, you know, individuals useful feedback and metrics. But beyond that stuff, a lot of it really is about gut feel, about does it feel like we're going the right directions in, in terms of what we're working on and how we're working on it. So some of it's quantitative, but a lot of it is very much subjective and qualitative. Gotcha. That's great. So I want to shift to another aspect of your life and, 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 and skills and how they sort of circle around game design, but aren't exactly game design. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you know, you've sort of actually, you know, design games and focus on design. We've just talked about, you know, management and building a organization and how that is in many ways like a game design process and the tools for that. And the other thing that you've, you know, become incredibly successful and well known for is, is, is teaching and communicating ideas around game design. You left Disney without an independent studio idea. You had left Disney to, to become a teacher as, as a sort of first step. What, what gave you the, the confidence that that was something you'd be good at and that made the desire to do that? And, and how does that, how did you view that, that transition? Oh, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I'd always had a little bit of a teacher fantasy kind of thing. Just the whole idea of like, I've always liked explaining things to people. I often find, uh, even, even when I was very young, when I'd learn a new thing or I'd figure out some new thing, I would find myself in my mind, like, here's how I would explain this to another person. It was just always how I approached things is how, how can I, how can I take this new information and make it clear to somebody else? Um, so that had been a thing that always been on my mind. Um, but really it, what, what gave me the confidence was, was working with Randy Pausch, um, who, as some of your listeners may know him from the last lecture, which, uh, uh, was a was a talk that he gave when he'd become uh, ill with pancreatic cancer and became very popular and and then turned into an inspirational book that has also been very popular. If anybody has not listening to this now has not watched that or listened to that, stop this podcast and go listen to that. It's amazing and come back to this because this is also great. But that yeah, that's incredible. He's an incredible human. Yeah. So so Randy was he he was very encouraging to me that. Um, when he came to Disney, he was very much looking for how the heck is Disney making VR experiences that are so much better than the best of what's being done in the research world right now. And to his surprise, he learned it wasn't about big brains and big computing, that it was really about bringing artists and engineers together and to do things that they couldn't do separately, which is not a thing academia is traditionally good at. Um, in academia, you know, different departments are separate and everybody's very laser focused on their own micro discipline. But at Disney, there's a long, long history of art and engineering kind of working closely hand in hand. Um, I'd come from this kind of weird place where I, I'd been doing computer science, but also I had learned a lot as a, as a circus performer. So we were always talking about the principles of entertainment and how they can be sort of translated into an interactive world. And he, he was, he really 
he was always interested in the approach that I had and the way that I thought about it. And he encouraged me to start doing lectures at conferences. He, he initially got me some ins at uh, SIGGRAPH. He would he'd pitch talks at SIGGRAPH that, where he and I would do co-talks together. And it was the first time I'd done any kind of real sort of academic public speaking. And the, those tended to go well. Some of them were, were, uh, went well and, and uh, were, were fairly popular. And, uh, and that, that gave me some, some confidence, definitely. And then he'd really encouraged me that, like, that, that I, he thought I could uh, be able to, to teach at the school. So, um, and I was interested in it, so I just kind of went for it. So when you uh, teach game design, uh, it's, you know, now there's, there's more of an established field than it was when you were first getting started. You, you know, in many ways had to sort of build the curriculum at that time. Had, had, had you thought about teaching game design specifically? What, what do you feel has been most effective? Where do you feel that most maybe other areas were failing in, in, in approaching that process? Yeah, I mean, when I started, I guess I started 2002. Back then, I want to say there were about five books about digital game design, but I think that's that's it. And most of them were not very good at all. And so I had to make up a lot of it uh, myself. But my instinct from the beginning was that the right way to think about game design was not to be looking at the latest technological marvels and how they work, but but much more to be thinking about what are the fundamentals and the basics of the way the human mind interacts with games and how can you break that down? So the uh, so my game design teaching approach was very much about having people build really simple games, um, card games and board games and party games and playground games, and looking at the fundamentals of what makes them work. Because all those, all the fundamentals of what makes those work are the same fundamentals that make, um, you know, the most popular high-end digital games work. Um, but you can just iterate faster and see the elements more clearly with working with more rudimentary games. Yeah, that's uh, definitely the same advice I've I've given to all aspiring designers: is start, you know, start with traditional tabletop card games those kinds of things just because the more you can go through that core design loop of ideating te prototyping testing learning and going through that the better you're going to get faster uh and no matter where you want to end up I've, i found that to be true with with everybody that i've i've trained and i've worked with yeah that sounds right so you'd been teaching for about what five four or five years before you um you published uh the art of uh, game design. Yeah, yeah. Let's see. Art of game design came out two thousand eight, and it was very much um, based on the class that I teach at Carnegie Mellon in in game design. Um, I'd I'd sort of had to build up a set of uh, lectures about game design, and and th those became the beginnings of of the book. I think very much. Well, and I, you know, I've, I've recommended your book to, to many people, um, and, and read through it myself and referred back to individual parts of it. It's, it's, it's really the most comprehensive overview of the craft that I've found. Uh, and somehow it manages while being obviously a very big book covering a lot of material to still be very relatable and kind of 
almost conversational in the way that that it that it approaches it doesn't read like a textbook even though it, it serves as one in in many cases what that when you what was your process of writing that book like you 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 created your lectures for class and then just sort of turned those into the chapters of the book or was it did you have to you know take a semester off and go work on it how how did that work no it's 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 funny it sort of happened in stages and 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 phases um even when i was back at disney i f- was sort of working on this book um back then i had a different title for it i called it understanding entertainment I'd been very, there were two books that had been a big influence on me, actually three, I guess, that really led to art of game design. One of them was Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud, um, you know, which is this incredible book written in comic form, all about the nature of how the comics medium actually works. And uh, that, that impressed me a great deal. Similarly, there's a book, Magic and Showmanship, by uh, a magician named Henning Nelms, was written, I think, in the 1960s. And when I talk about interest curves in art of game design, I stole most of that right out of Henning Nelms. And I'd learned all that when I was working with a show troupe and uh, a, a magician ran it. And he, he really insisted that anyone who wants to understand about making great shows needed to read this book. And the third one was um, a book called A Pattern Language by Christopher Alexander, which is all about what are the patterns of architecture that make for a pleasing human experience? And so I boldly believed that um, I could write a book all about the nature of entertainment. And so I was taking a bit of the interest curve stuff from Nelms and kind of the approach of, of, uh, of, of Alexander with his, with his patterns and I was really trying to break down, like, here are the ways that human minds get entertained. And it was just sort of a personal project. I didn't really know where I was going or how I was working on it, but I'd always make notes on it. I just collected notes and notes and notes about how the human mind works with entertainment. And after I started teaching, a uh, publisher approached me about the Panda 3D game engine, which was kind of a proto-Unity engine that had come out of Disney. Um, there was no Unity engine back then, so we sort of invented it. We called it Panda 3D, and Disney made it open source. And, and he'd approached me about, hey, you have, what do you think about writing a book about programming in Panda 3D? And I, I kind of, well, I wasn't too into that, but I told him, let me tell you about this Understanding Entertainment project. And he wasn't too into that, but he said, you know, that sounds kind of in the realm of game design. And we, you could use a textbook on game design. What do you think about that? And I realized that, yeah, you know what? I mean, what I'm doing in my game design class anyway is applying all these understanding entertainment patterns to game design. And yeah, that's going to mark, because who's going to want to buy a book understanding entertainment? That doesn't, it, it's just, it's too general. It's too vague. Um, so I said, yeah, okay, I think I could do that. And so that's that's kind of what kicked me off trying to do it. But it took some time. Like I, I mean, I think I started it in earnest in 2003, but it wasn't really ready to publish until 2000. Eight, just because there was a lot in there, and I wanted to think hard and uh, and and get it right. Well, I uh, I certainly, for one, appreciate all of that hard work. Uh, it really, I feel it moved the craft forward in a way that uh, is pretty substantial and and, and lasting. So, oh, th- thanks a lot. And you'd mentioned the conversational part of it. I'd always part of what had always intimidated me about the idea of writing a textbook or something was I was never good at 
formal third person style nonfiction writing. Um, I always felt much better just being one person relating to another person. I'd and and part of what really inspired me, I'd uh, I'd found these writings by this guy Elbert Hubbard, who had written all these little biographies of people back in the 1890s and printed them himself. And they were gorgeously printed. And the writing was so personal. So just one person sitting down talking to another. I mean, one third of these things are biographies, but two thirds of it are the musings of the author just talking about what he thinks are important. And these, these just, they struck me with their personal style. And I thought, you know what, that like, I like this style and I, I can, this is how I want to communicate and I'm just going to go for it. Even though a lot of people were telling me you couldn't do that. And the early reviews from the publisher were some of them, people were really displeased with this tone because it was so non-typical of a, of a textbook. But I just kept realizing like, look, this is, this is the only way I know how to do it. So I'm just going to go all in on it. Well, I don't know um, how many of uh, the audience uh, this question will help out, but I have uh, been working on a book of my own on on game design and uh, much sort of shorter and more kind of step by step getting started than 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 your book approach uh, to it. Cool. Uh, do you have advice uh, for those of us who are interested in, uh, you know, uh, contributing and, and, and putting something out there? Any any lessons you learned on on either the creation or the you know, publishing and, and a process that, that you would share? Um, well, um, the publishing, I don't know about, I mean, that's such a weird business. Um, uh, you know, the right way to publish books nowadays has changed so much. Um, so yeah, I don't know if I have too much to say on that. Uh, other than one thing, people people who are interested in writing books on these topics, one one thing to check out is the ETC Press at Carnegie Mellon now, um, as a run by Drew Davidson, and it, it they've it's published dozens of different uh, game development books, and has a very interesting model where digital downloads are all free, and then individual copies are kind of printed up on a on a one by one basis. Um, but so that that's a little bit of a different model to check out if that's something that's interesting to you. But in terms of actually getting your book done, I think the key thing is that you do have to do it. And momentum is the most important thing with getting a book done. Momentum and deadlines are the two things that will get a book. I feel the exact same way about games. So <laughs> deadlines are magic. <laughs> It's absolutely true. Yeah. And, you know, momentum and deadlines, they, they are both magic. The easy, it's hard to have deadlines in the beginning when you don't know what you're doing. And so at that point, you just want to get some momentum going. And one of my piece of advice is write 20 minutes every day. You're not going to get a lot done at that rate, 20 minutes a day, but you will be making progress. And a lot of times, 20 minutes turns into 40 minutes, turns into an hour and a half. And you, you start to get that momentum going. And then once you start to have enough, you know, getting some appropriate deadlines in place is the right thing. I'm, I'm actually working on a second book right now with Barbara Chamberlain. We're writing a book about educational game development. And um, we're, we're not going super fast right now, to be honest, because we haven't set big deadlines for ourselves. And it doesn't bother me too much because we're in a very exploratory space and we have 
uh, we do have some pretty good momentum, but pretty soon we're going to have to set some good deadlines for ourselves. Well, that provides a great transition. I'd love to ask about educational games. Yeah. You know, the, everybody thinks of games as a sort of, you know, just there for fun and enjoyment. And, you know, maybe there's some social value and people getting together. But this idea that games as a teaching tool is, is actually pretty fundamental to the why we play games as a species. And it seems like the process of using games in educational ways is not, it has kind of a bad uh, connotation to it. There's some some bad juju on it out there. Can you can you help uh, brush that away or uh, explain it? Well, I mean, yeah, sure. It's 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 not complicated. There's a lot of bad educational games out there, right? And everybody at some time or other has had a bad educational game foisted on them by a teacher or a parent or a or or a grandparent or something. And because uh, um, the the problem is, unlike normal, particularly educational games for children, um, they don't work through the same marketing channel that normal games work through. Normal games are like, hey, look how fun this is. And if people think it looks fun, then they'll buy the game. Educational games are often in different realm. It's often the, the purchasing choices made by parents who say, oh, look at the vitamins that are in this. Um, and there's secondary consideration given to whether the games are fun or not. And then on top of that, of course, first of all, making a fun game at all is super hard. It's really, really, really hard. And then you're going to say, I'm going to make a fun game and people who play it are going to come away from it better people in some way. This just makes everything much harder. So um, the the reason that most... Uh, educational games are bad is because it's just super hard and then secondly you've got this this marketing problem um, on top of that uh but when it works well it's amazing and it and it works wonders right when you when you have games that that have meaningful education in them and people are um having fun doing them or or really enjoying what they're doing it, it's a it's a wonderful thing because people are enjoying what they're doing and they are improving themselves uh, a, as they go. And it, it scares a lot of people away because it is so hard, but the, the, the rewards for when you get it right are just, uh, you know, absolutely incredible. Well, you know, one that we've been very proud about is our Happy Atoms game, which is a sort of a physical digital thing. You, you get these magnetic pieces that snap together that that are little atom models and you snap them together to make uh, molecules following certain rules. And when you've, when you snap them together, which then they're fun to just touch and play with and snap together. But of course you have no idea what you made. And at that point you point your, your smartphone at it and it does a visual analysis and it'll tell you like, you know, Oh, then, you know, that's, uh, that's methane or that's uh, sodium chloride or, or whatever it is. It can detect 17,000 different molecules. And then it gives you facts and things all about it and kind of gives you quests to go and do more. And when you see, like, I, I mean, I've seen kids come out of it and say, like, that, that like that they're, they now want to be scientists after playing this game. And it's exciting to see that, not because it was something foisted on them, because but because the game found a way to take what's actually fun about being a scientist and put it in the hands of, of young people. So like I, I get very excited about making great uh, educational content. 
Yeah, I find uh I find that space really fascinating. I uh I think there's there's a couple of 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 key points. The one that you've already hit on is this idea of like, you know, being able to sort of bring the fun and the the lesson and and doing both of those things well incredibly challenging and but that there's there's big rewards when you get there. And the other thing is there's I think certain types of lessons that are uniquely well taught via games. Um, so for example, I worked on a project with the Wharton School of Business called the Startup Game, which was basically a role-playing game for the students everybody would play and take on the roles of founders and venture capitalists and talent, and and you would sort of have to make your deals and kind of set up your company, uh, and then it would get scored, and then the classes can be taught on those principles of what you know makes you more or less likely to be successful and the types of considerations you have. And that forcing you to wrestle with the choices uh, in an uncertain environment is exactly what you have to do as an entrepreneur. And that's very hard to teach from, you know, a book. Uh, and I find that there's space there that is pretty interesting to play with, um, that games are not just more fun or, or you know, to, to learn from, but actually uniquely capable of teaching from. No, I think, I think that makes sense. There are a lot of kinds of learning that work better as learning by doing, and games are a kind of doing. So for, um, are there other games that you recommend or that you think have, have hit this really well other than, uh, than the Happy Adams one that you made that others, others out there that you look at as kind of like, yes, this, this, this did it right? Oh, boy, there are a lot of really fascinating uh, ones uh, out there. Um, you know, my, my co-author on the, on the book, uh, Barbara Chamberlain, she runs this learning games lab um, down in New Mexico, and they a lot of their games are just just little underrated gems. There's there's one I really like, uh, Night of the Living Debt, which is all about um, you know helping helping teenagers understand well what does it mean to have a credit card, and and what what does it mean to accumulate debt, and what are the consequences of that, and it does it by kind of translating it into this sort of world of zombies where um where your debt takes the form of zombies that kind of come back to get you and so you you it's funny because you play this game about trying to deal with all the zombies in the world and it really it's it's just an analog for like how, how to properly um, do the right kind of debt this kind of is, is fascinating some of the some of the games that i like the most are ones that are not explicitly trying to be uh, they don't present themselves necessarily as educational games. I think Papers, Please is a great example of this. It's trying to sort of present you with uh, a viewpoint um, and the complexities of uh, the, you know, the, the, the circumstances of, of immigration. Um, but it presents itself just as a kind of an interesting indie game. And there, there's, I don't know, there, there, there are dozens and dozens, but they, they really are kind of hidden out in the world. And for people that are interested in, in that space, obviously you're writing a book, so I'm sure a lot of your, your lessons are, are sort of either being formulated or presented. Do you have kind of tips for now? This is maybe somebody who is, uh, has some experience in game design and wants to move into the educational game field. Yeah. I mean, I guess the, uh, there's two different ways to look at that. One of them is the question of doing that as a business because it's a tricky business. It's not a business at all like the normal um, game development space because the markets just aren't there really. 
if you have the idea that you're going to make this great game and just sell it into schools, there just is no market like that. Um, the, there is no standard way that schools and teachers buy video games. So that doesn't really exist. So what you have to do is you end up often trying to go in through the normal entertainment channels with your education game. And that, and that doesn't, it, it just, there's a lot of challenges with that. Um, you have an advantage when you're talking about games for preschoolers because parents will often um, spend money on games that they think are going to help their, their kids prepare for school. But uh, be out, outside of that space, it can be really tough. So the main thing is you have to have a clever hook. You've got to have a different way of doing things that's going to, to get people's uh, attention and kind of and, and actually work. Um, either, either through just a different business model or a different approach. Like when we did Happy Atoms, we give that app away for free, but we partnered with a toy company to make the physical toy. And then the revenues come in off of selling the the toy. Yeah, uh, We're doing another one, a chemistry-related one right now. It's actually a VR game that the kind of working title is uh, Super Chem right now. And it's a chemistry laboratory. And we'd love to just make money by selling it into high schools, but we know that there's just not that's just not going to be a revenue source that's really going to work even though there's a lot of demand and a lot of interest the amount of money that would come in wouldn't offset the development so what we're doing at the same time is making it into an entertainment game that uh where you you it's a it's an adventure game on a space station and you end up solving all the problems on the space station by doing real chemistry you have to make um you know acids to to melt obstacles and you have to create illumination to get through dark areas and um, and you have to make a battery and, and it's all ends up being real chemistry from a chemistry lab, but in an adventure game context. We were very inspired by the game Kerbal Space Program, if you've seen that, which is kind of a rocketry game, um, very popular with science teachers, but it sold 2 million units on Steam and they got bought by Take-Two, in fact. Um, mm-hmm. And so here is a, is a thing that's ostensibly entertainment, but has a lot of great educational elements of it as well. I think that's one of the best approaches to take right now. Obviously, very challenging, um, but it's definitely an approach that that I encourage. Yeah, that sounds sounds fascinating. And I, uh, you know, we're running a little bit late on time, so I I want to uh, I'll ask I guess this question more briefly, but the, take it from the other side of. Mm-hmm a educator who wants to use games um, to help their kids and to help their teaching process. Um, is there a way that they can approach sort of bringing these things into the classroom or bringing this into their, their thinking about how they can, can move forward with it? Oh yeah. I would say for an educator who wants to kind of bring games into the classroom, I think there's, there's some great books out there. The one I'm thinking about here, it's called Gamify Your Classroom by Matt Farber. This is just such a weird coincidence. He and I had talked several times as he was putting this book together, all about bringing game techniques into your classroom and writing this Gamify Your Classroom book. And the weird part is I, it wasn't until I actually got a copy of the book and looked at his little mini bio and realized that he is a geography teacher who teaches at the same junior high that I went to in the same classroom that I took geography class in. So that was just a weird uh, coincidence. But his advice, and I think it's the right advice, is 
bringing digital games into the classroom can make sense when you find the right games, but often the the stuff that works best in the classroom are the things that are more hands-on, more social. Finding ways to bring board and card game uh, approaches into the classroom often work best. I've got a team of students at uh, Carnegie Mellon right now. They're working on kind of a thing that's sort of best of both worlds. They are, have a system that uses simple Google Cardboard type VR, and but it's networked. So it allows like 20 students to, in a networked way, go into a VR world together and they've designed these hands-on activities, very similar to what Matt Farber describes in his book, but kind of adapting it into the VR space. So I think for teachers, it's don't be afraid to keep it simple. Look at best practices that other people are doing um, and, uh, and, and be ready and willing to experiment. Oh, there's so many things I want to talk about. Um, so uh, I guess the last topic that's too big for the time we have left that we'll just touch on is you, you mentioned gamification uh, as, uh, you know, sort of gamifying the education process, gamifying the classroom. Gamification uh, sort of rose as a buzzword maybe five, six years ago and faded a bit since then and how sort of gamifying businesses and life and all these different components. Is that something you still feel is a fruitful area? It was overhyped. Is it something that, uh, you know, we see it in little bits here and there around our life? How do you, how do you think about sort of gamifying life more broadly? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I think um, there was a lot of hype when people thought, oh, this will be easy. <laughs> Games are simple, right? It's easy to make a fun game. And so why not just take those same game techniques and just slap them on top of uh, uh, the ordinary things we do every day? And, and this will be an easy thing to do. And it turns out that like, whoa, it's no, it's not easy to do. Um, because making good gameplay designs and mechanics, just like making good design of any kind, is actually quite hard. And I'd get pulled in on consultations all the time with companies who say, hey, yeah, we just want to lay down a simple game design layer over what we're doing. Just show us how to do that. And I'd say, okay, well, the way you start is let's dissect what you're already doing. Like, let's talk about the fundamental reasons you're doing it, your fundamental methods, and let's rethink which of those are flawed and let's change out the bad ones and let's build motivational structures that people are going to really want to do into this new restructuring of what you're doing. And they'd be like, whoa, whoa, what are you, I don't, we don't want to change anything. We just want to put this kind of layer on here. I thought you were just going to give some points and achievements and we'd move on, right? <laughs> Yeah, that's that's all. That's what we want to do. Just yeah, just let's let's stick some points on it, and then, <laughs> and so, um, so I think it still happens all the time. You look at Duolingo, right? Most people don't call that a game; they just call it an app. Yes, but it's completely a, a system all about um, using game style techniques to kind of keep up your momentum with your your language learning. And it's just quietly acknowledged that yes, of course, this is the best practice for for how to do um, for how to do a, a language app, and we see it, you know, in, in simple things like web page design um, all the time. I mean, and it, it, so so I guess what I'd say is it hasn't gone away; it just wasn't as easy as people thought, and at the same time, it's cre quietly creeping into everything uh, that we do. And so it's, it's, it's there. It's just, uh, silently taking over. Yep. I use, I use Duolingo specifically a lot as a, as an example. And, um, even, even simple little things like, you know, my car has a little efficiency meter 
that shows how efficient I'm driving and saving gas and it fills up or slows down. It's it's such a trivial little mechanic, but it makes it more fun for me to be like, oh, look at me. I'm being super efficient now. Um, so it doesn't take a lot to really influence behavior, uh, but it's a, it's fascinating. My favorite one of those is the Mini Cooper convertible. It has a little fun meter on it. And it's like, I'm like a fun meter. Like, what is that? And what they do is it's just this little percentage needle that charts. It's on the car persistently over time. And it, uh, it charts the percentage of the time that you have the top down. <laughs> I hadn't heard of that. That's awesome. <laughs> and it has no real purpose other than just to kind of give you a little poke about, hey, yeah, you know, you did buy a convertible, didn't you? Why don't you put the top down a little more? That's amazing. I actually have a convertible and it's totally true. Over the years, you just, you don't put it down as much as you used to. When you first get it, it's down no matter what. I don't care if it's raining, I still got the top down. <laughs> you know, five, six years later, you're like, oh yeah, you know, it's there. I remember. That's great. Now maybe you need a fun meter. No, I do need a fun meter. You're right. I can work on that. Okay. So it, this has been an amazing talk and, and I, I really I hope we we get an opportunity to speak again because there's there's a lot of deep talk topics we didn't get into. Uh, but I want to go through there's a few questions I ask all of uh, my guests uh, and I want to hit hit those before we we close. So uh, you mentioned several great uh, books to read outside of your own, which of course I recommend strongly um, the Art of Game Design and Book of Lenses. You mentioned understanding comics, uh, magic and showmanship, pattern language. Uh, I, are there other books that, uh, you know, top two or three that come to mind of things that you would recommend for aspiring game designers? And the, as with the other examples, they don't have to be game design books, just things that you think are, are, are valuable. The one I'm digging into now is uh, Thinker Toys. The author has gone right out of my brain right now, but uh, this was a book recommended to me by the designer of uh, Color Switch. And he, he came to me with a, quite a story about, because Color Switch has been incredibly successful, right? Over 100 million downloads, et cetera. And his story was absolutely amazing. He, he had background as an artist and as a, a combat medic and all kinds of things. And he decided he was going to go into games, even though he didn't know how to program. And uh, he, read, he said, I read two books. I read Thinker Toys and I read Art of Game Design. And he said, when I put the, what I learned together from this, I understood how to make games. And he's just started making games and he, he made 40 games in a row that all failed. And then he made color switch and hit it really big. And he, um, he, he gives a lot of credit to art of game design, which is great, but also to this book, thinker toys, which I've only just started to dig into. And it seems to have a lot of great advice about just how to break down problems and move forward on them. Uh, so, the, so that's a book I've been pretty uh, excited about lately. Great. I'm going to pick that one up. I hadn't heard of that. That sounds fascinating. Um, then uh, what uh, games are you most excited about right now? What games are you playing or uh, games are you sort of most interested in following that are coming out soon? What's What's got your attention? Yeah, boy. I've, I Lately, we've been so busy. I've been had a hard time just keeping up with the games coming out of my studio. Um but uh, I've been looking a lot at a lot of the VR stuff that's coming out because that's just that fascinates me uh, so much. I think Lone Echo is a fantastic achievement in the in the VR space, um, just in terms of what you could do with a with sort of a larger budget VR game and having characters that uh, that you get uh, you, you get a little uh, a little more up close and and uh, personal with. Lone Echo. Cool. 
Yeah, yeah, no, that that's that that one's that one's pretty good. That's kind of setting some setting some bars for the rest of us to to live up to as we as we as we move forward in that space. But boy, there's just so much stuff going on that when I a lot of times when I'm when I'm sort of done for the day, the last thing I want to do is go and check out more cutting edge games. I've been lately retreating a lot into old games. I've been getting really into uh, uh, old Atari games and trying to complete my uh, Atari collection there. So that's been I've been going a little retro. So are you are you using a, an emulator? You actually have a retro machine. Oh no, I have a retro machine. I don't like emulators. The sound usually isn't right, and sometimes the timings aren't right. Um, I and I just like the old hardware anyway. So I mostly I mostly go for that, and it's it's fascinating to learn. I mean, again, just in terms of breaking things down into simple game mechanics, I always I find some obscure Atari game and. I always think, oh, this is just another space shooter. I'm not going to learn anything from this. And then I fire it up, and I'm like, oh my god! Like, so who who would have thought that a game mechanic like this was even ever a good idea? And it it opens up doors in in uh, new new ways to look at things that I hadn't seen before. And that's what I like partly about the old games. Same thing for a lot of simple mobile games. Is just the the mechanics are just laid bare. They're very simple. They're not hidden in layers and layers of story. You're just staring at this kind of weird mechanic. And it gives you a lot to think about. Yeah, I love the sort of minimalist approach and, and that, you know, I've always been a big believer that, you know, restrictions breed creativity. And those old games had to work under so many restrictions and so little space and so little graphics and so, you know, all of it. And so the things that came out of it were really incredible. Yeah, no, no, it's 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 true. It, it, it makes you uh, it definitely makes you invent things. So the. uh Next question: What what advice would you give for somebody that's starting out today? Now you you mentioned the you know obviously playing games a lot and you know testing and designing them and iterating on them. Is there are there other sort of tips for somebody that's that's just starting out? They don't know how to program, they don't know how to do anything, but they love games. They really want to get into this industry. Well, there's so many approaches that you can take. Certainly, playing games and thinking about games a lot is very important. If you're, if you're looking to be a designer, the thing I always advise people to do is start a blog. Start writing about what works and doesn't work in the games that you look at and play, because it forces you to break it down in writing, um, in structured thought, to sort of analyze how uh, what's working. But then, ultimately, you just got to start making some games whether they be you know card games and board games, which you could start immediately. Um, but if you're going to go for digital games, either you, you learn some simple coding or you get with a partner or you start to use some of the tools that are out there. You look at things like um, um, the, uh, Game Salad is one that's out there. It's a pretty easy one. Game Maker is still around. And I'm, yeah, and there, and there, but there's a, there's a lot of other tools you can use out there if you're not ready to start coding but however you do it just start doing stuff and it's the way i look at it it's, just, it's a lot like people say oh i want to um i want to learn music what do i do well you could go to music school and you could read a book about music but probably you should just pick up an instrument and start trying to make noises with it and see what happens um because uh, ultimately if you know if you're if you're going to get good at something you just have to do it Great. Well, I, I think we're we're about out of time. Uh, if people want to uh, hear more from you, find out more about you, play your games, read your stuff, where where should they go look? How can they how can they find out more? The easiest thing is just go to jessieshell.com. Uh, you can also drop in at shellgames.com. 
and find out more about what our studio is doing. But uh, lots of information there and contact information. I'm always happy to take uh, emails from people. Um, always, always glad to help out if I can. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to speak with me. Thank you for your book, for all your work in the field and all the awesome games you've been making. It's really, it's been a huge contribution and it's something that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to be a part of here. And, and it's meant a lot that you've taken the time. So thanks so much for being here. All right. Thanks a lot, Justin. It was great talking today. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you want to support the podcast, please rate, comment, and share on your favorite podcast platforms, such as iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever device you're listening on. Listener reviews and shares make a huge difference and help us grow this community and will allow me to bring more amazing guests and insights to you. I've taken the insights from these interviews, along with my 20 years of experience in the game industry, and compressed it all into a book with the same title as this podcast, Think Like a Game Designer. In it, I give step-by-step instructions on how to apply the lessons from these great designers and bring your own games to life. If you think you might be interested, you can check out the book at thinklikeagamedesigner.com or wherever fine books are sold.